great. Let's uh, grab a seat and let's get to God's Word. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21 as we continue our series through this lengthy book and our very lengthy series moving through it. Although, as you'll see today, we're trying to pick up some pace considerably. Uh, You'll need your Bible and you'll need to follow along uh, this morning because we're going to deal with um, a large chunk. We're going to begin in in chapter 21, beginning in verse 27, and we will um, cover this morning uh, through chapter 23, verses 37. Um, I was reminded, I was thinking about this week about whether to read all the verses in this section. It's 76 verses. Um, and I was thinking about the scene from Princess Bride when um, Yoniga Montoya is up on the wall and they're about to invade the castle and Wesley kind of comes to and he's trying to explain the situation to him and he goes, uh, let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum. Uh, and um, I think this morning I'm going to go with, I'm going to sum. We're going to sum up because of 76 verses, a little bit too long to read in depth. Uh, and so here, follow, but I do want you to follow along your Bible so you can see the headings as I move through it and you'll kind of be able to scan over it um, as, as I give kind of a summary here of these uh, essentially three chapters from Acts in chapter 21 through 23. So we pick up verse 27 of chapter 21. If you remember, Paul has arrived in Jerusalem. Um, he is now trying to um, make amends and help, can make connections with uh, the church, the, the Jerusalem church, the Jewish Christians there, uh, by participating in this kind of uh, time of uh, cleansing and, and Nazarene vow. Uh, but what we see here is that the people um, get angry with Paul because of rumors about him. And so they form, we see in verse 27, essentially a, a lynch mob to destroy Paul and to rip him from limb to limb. But the Roman commander who's supposed to be there to keep the peace finds out about this and takes his whole garrison and runs down and removes Paul from the situation. Now, at first, the Roman commander thinks that Paul is the culprit because what's the common denominator in all these people's anger? It appears to be this guy. So he arrests Paul, but then Paul convinces him to speak to the crowd, which the commander perhaps foolishly lets him go ahead and and preach to the crowd. And so Paul addresses this very large mob and shares what is essentially his own personal testimony to them. He shares about his background as a Pharisee and as a devout Jew. Then he shares with them about his conversion experience, about how he was on the Damascus road and to persecute Christians in Damascus. And then the resurrected Lord Jesus appeared to him and in his glory uh, confronted him and blinded him with the light of his glory. Paul then went on to share about how a man named Ananias in the city of Damascus came to Paul and and brings healing to Paul, but also prophesies over Paul that he will be a witness. And then Paul shares this interesting experience that I think we only hear here in this text, which is Paul goes back to Jerusalem at some point, and while he's in the temple, he has a vision from God that tells him that not only is he going to be a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Jews, but he's also going to be a witness to Gentiles around the world. Now, at the very mention of Gentiles, this crowd loses their ever-living minds, and they begin to go crazy, and they chant, away with him, away with him. He does not deserve to be on this earth. And so the commander, once again, has to save the day and remove Paul, and to, but he's still confused as to what in the world, what is it that this guy has done that has these people so riled up. And so he does the, the things that most Romans do when they want to find out what's going on. He's going to beat him until he confesses. Um, some of you, this is your parenting method. Uh, this is why we consider you should go to the conference. Like, we will beat you until you tell us who started the fights. But this is what his approach is. But Paul, he, he kind of very quietly, very kind of seems to, to, to bring it at the very 
in the last second says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. And, and the commander goes, this probably isn't a good idea to beat Paul since he's a Roman citizen. But he's still curious about the fact as to why these people are so angry with Paul. And so he arranges for Paul the next day to go to the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish religious uh, authoritative body. And once again, Paul seems to get himself into trouble here because about half a sentence into what he has to say there, um, it's, he is uh, the, the high priest, the Jewish high priest, who you normally think of high priests as being rather respectable, kind of well-put-together guys, well, he decides to smack Paul across the face, to which Paul has a pithy reply. And once again, uh, Paul then ye- yells out in the midst of this crowd at this Sanhedrin, this council, that he is on trial because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ which then sends the whole court into a tizzy. The uh, Sadducees, who they're, they don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're Sadducee, you see. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection and the Pharisees, and they fight. And they, once again, they're going to beat up Paul again. And so the Roman soldiers must once again extricate Paul from the situation. Once again, they save the day. And then Paul gets back to the jail. And the following night, Jesus comes to Paul. And this is the key verse, I think, in the whole text. He says, Paul, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God comes and encourages him. But then we see, picking up in verse 23, or chapter 23, verse 12 of that passage, that the Jewish leaders are so annoyed that Paul is still existent on this earth that 40 men decide that they're going to make a pact together that they will not eat or drink until Paul is dead. In other words, the, the most important thing in their life from that moment was to see that Paul was killed. That they are like ravenous wolves who would rather see him dead. So, the Paul, so But Paul's nephew gets wind of this conspiracy, shares with Paul, who shares with the centurion, who shares with the commander, who decides that it would be best to get Paul out of town. And so he raises up essentially a small army of 470 Roman soldiers and whisks Paul away off to Caesarea uh, and out of harm's way. So there you go. There's your summary of these three chapters. Are you with me? I hope so. I hope you're able to keep up with that. Now, what I want to do this morning is kind of go head, heading by heading through uh, four, essentially four headings this morning I want to look at. But the through line that you're going to see throughout the, the, this sermon is, I think, the call to courage. That we're going to see in the, under the first heading is the fact that we need courage. Then you're going to see uh, Paul's displays of courage, and then you're going to see some reasons for courage. Now, this doesn't fit with your outline. Your outline is simply the headings from the text. So let's walk section by section through this. And the first section of the first heading I want to give to this, this passage, is this lengthy passage of Scripture, is I want you to see the hatred of the Jews. This is seen in verses 27 through 36 of chapter 21, chapter 22, verses 22 and 23, and then again in chapter 23, verses 12 through 15. Now, a mere cursory reading of this very long passage will reveal this one particular thing that screams at us. The Jewish leaders and the Jewish people, well, they're angry. That's pretty apparent. It's pretty obvious. Verse 27, Paul doesn't do anything, and suddenly they lay hands on him. Verse 30, they're, they're going to beat up Paul. They're dragging him, in verse 31, out of the temple. And verse 35, even the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, are impressed by the violence of this crowd. And then what do you see? You see what they chant about him in verse 36 of chapter 21. Away with him, away with him, merely for the fact that they say that he brought a Gentile into the temple courts. Then we see in verse 21 of chapter 22, all Paul has to do is to claim that the Lord sent him to the Gentiles, and the Jewish people lose their minds. 
and determined that, oh my goodness, you want to reach Gentiles? You don't deserve to live on the earth. That's what they say. That would be like somebody coming up here this summer and going, you know what, I'm going to go on a short-term missions trip, and I want to reach Muslims. And we all go, you know what, we're not a big fan of Muslims. You deserve to die. That's what's going on here. And then we see them perhaps the highest, uh, you see in chapter 23, that Paul gets only a mere sentence in, and the high priest of the Jewish people slaps Paul across the face. And then perhaps the highest form of hatred and violence seen is the plot to kill Paul in chapter 23, verses 12 through 15. Men are willing not to eat until Paul is dead. I'd say they're angry. I'd say they got some hatred. I would say there's some violence going on here in their view of Paul. And what we see, actually, I would, I would describe it perhaps as blind rage. Blind rage. And blind rage, when blind rage takes over, particularly in a mob like this, two things particularly begin to happen. The first thing I would just say is, that tends to happen is mobs stop listening. That when you have a mob mentality and you're filled with rage, you, you don't have the ability to hear well. You ever experienced this in a fight with your spouse? Something, I mean, nothing they say seems to compute correctly because you're so angry. One of the things that is interesting about the early church is that Christians, because of the hatred against them, against them, are consistently misunderstood. For example, Christians were accused of incest. Do you know why? Because they went around calling each other brother and sister and giving each other's holy kisses. So they're accused of incest. Christians were also accused of cannibalism. You know why? Because they had this thing called the Lord's Supper where they claimed to eat the body and blood of Jesus. Nobody seemed to take the time to figure out what they meant by that. They were also claimed, uh, some thought they were a cult of, 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 Jew, of Judaism, a sect of the Nazarenes. And they, they thought this because they were so disciplined in their pursuit, their, in devout in their pursuit of God. Some Christians were called atheists. And that's because they wouldn't bow down and worship uh, the Roman emperor, the Caesar, who was considered to be divine. Christians have consistently not been understood by those who already have decided that they hate them. And Christians, I would say, even in today, are called immoral ones for our particular views. For example, in our day and age, in a day in which tolerance reigns, a tolerance being the, the cover for we all get to do whatever we want, the issue today is that we are called the immoral ones because we would challenge what people can and cannot do. We would challenge about the basic sanctity of life in the womb because we would challenge particular views on marriage and sexuality, and these things mean that we are now bigoted. We are the immoral ones. Do you understand that? It's not that they don't like us. It's that we are seen as actually immoral. But these things happen to Jesus. They happen to Paul. They happen to the early church. And we should not be surprised if they happen to us. The other thing that happens when there's blind rage and hatred that we see here by a mob is injustice usually follows. Injustice usually follows. In fact, if you do an outline of this whole section... Um, it, it, the first thing I do on Mondays is I read through the text. And I'm just trying to get a sense of the flow of the text. Oh, this is a really long text. But here would be the flow. There's a, actually a pattern to the text that goes this way. Paul speaks or acts. The Jews lose their minds and rage against Paul, leading to injustice. And then the third step is the Romans come in to save the day, seeking justice. In other words, Luke is actually in this text making a clear comparison between Jewish injustice and Roman systems of justice. But there is no rage in the world quite like the rage of an ism. You know what an ism is? A system of thoughts, and particularly a religious system where you believe that you have God-ordained right to do whatever you're doing. 
In other words, God has given us the right to do this. We have God's blessing, even if that means that we have to push aside all earthly systems of justice that God says, by the way, that he put into place. But never mind that. We're going to just do what we want and rage in our violence in our own form of vigilante justice. And this is what the Jewish culture believed as well, that they have a superior religion and they are a superior people ethnically. And so they view themselves, because they are God's chosen people, that they can do what they want to do. And so what we see here is that they actually violate their own laws. The high priest essentially treats Paul as if he is already guilty by slapping him across the face. And there's actually laws in Leviticus about someone who's on trial not um, expecting that they're guilty until they've been proved as such. That they assume Paul is guilty without a hearing. And this is the same today. I said isms. When you have religious isms in particular, but also any worldview that is a dogma, that you begin to see when people have these loves for something, that it becomes the, the guiding up worldview and dogma of their life, they, they, are, they can be very vicious to deal with. They create their own forms of justice. For example, today we have a humanistic secularism that is taking over the world, and the, the answer of humanistic secularism about Christianity is this. Either we ostracize it or we criminalize it. By the way, in places, this is taking over much of Europe, in places like Israel, right? It is illegal to share the gospel because they want to ostracize and criminalize Christianity. When you confront people's idols, they get upset. Think about the history of the 20th century. What caused the greatest amount of destruction? It was isms. Communism and fascism caused unbelievable destruction around the world. It was worldviews and beliefs in which they would say we, we, everything else falls into bringing this about, that we, everything is, is, is subservient to us having our way with our, our social structure, the way that we want to live. And if you get in the way, we're going to crush you and we're going to hate you. And the reality is, is if you stand in the way of these isms, these religions of the world, whether it be um, religions that believe in a God or don't believe in a God, there's still some sort of ism, a worldview, a dogma. If you stand in their way and you call out their idols, guess what happens? They get really angry. They get really angry. But it's stated on multiple occasions in the New Testament that this should not surprise us. Because if you're a faithful disciple of Jesus, disciple of Jesus, and you're following him, then you will be treated as Jesus was treated. John 15, chapter 20 says this. Jesus is saying this. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And this is actually what Paul is experiencing here. It's interesting. I, I pointed this out last week, but Luke is going out of his way to maybe perhaps deliberately show how Paul is following in the footsteps of Jesus. Let me just point out six ways or five ways in which Luke does this. First, both Paul and Jesus were rejected by their own people, arrested without cause and imprisoned. Second, both were unjustly accused and willfully misrepresented by false witnesses. Third, both were slapped in the face in the, in the, in the court of law. Fourth, both were hapless victims of a secret Jewish plots. Fifth, both heard the terrifying noise of a frenzied mob that were screaming, away with him, away with him, or in Jesus' case, crucify him, crucify him. Here's the point. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, as Paul is a follower of Jesus, if you're going to be a consistent disciple of Christ, then you can expect persecution, and therefore, you need courage. You need courage. But if you're going to face up to a world in which you have to speak the truth to power and speak the truth to dogmas, and then you must, you need courage to do so. So that's the first thing we see is the, 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 the hatred of the Jewish people towards Paul and therefore his need for courage. Second, we see Paul's display of courage. The courage of Paul is the second heading I want you to see this morning. Get this picture. 
in chapter 21 and moving into chapter 22, Paul is attacked by a large mob of people in the temple. It says they beat him. They're trying to tear him from limb to limb. Then the Roman soldiers come in and whisk Paul away, but while he's doing that, he, they're doing that, he asks if he can preach. Now, let me ask you this. If you've just been beaten, you probably wouldn't be able to do a whole lot. Paul has been beaten possibly nearly to death, and yet he comes to, and what his great longing is to proclaim the gospel. This is an amazing courage by Paul, that he wants to stand in front of a mob. Now, there's probably about 200 soldiers protecting Paul, and that's nice, but if you're 200 soldiers facing thousands of people, this is still your, your, your life, if you're Paul. Your life is hanging in the balance. Now, now th- what is interesting here about Paul is it's obvious and clear that Paul is courageous. It's obvious and clear that, th- that this is courageous. And this is the call to us. Are we going to be courageous to the people who will communicate the gospel? Now, there is, there is a twisted view we've had about courage. So often, doing something courageous is just simply doing something dumb. Right? Like, you know, there's, courage is not a bunch of rednecks running around with a euphemistic donkey name, right? If you know what I'm talking about. It is not simply doing things that are physically harmful to you, that might be risky to your, your, your body. Courage is actually facing the fear and moving over it because you have a greater joy and hope. But what I want you to see in our particular day and age, there can be some, um, some threats, some concerns that we might have as to how to display courage. I want you to see here this morning, I'm going to give you five ways that Paul displays courage. Not only does he show courage, but some, maybe some things that might push against the way sometimes we show courage. So these are going to be Paul's courage, but he didn't do this. Okay? All right, first, Paul is courageous, but he ain't uncultured. Paul's courageous, but he ain't uncultured. Paul, despite beating, getting beaten up by this crowd, still wants to share the gospel. But what I want you to see is that Luke and, uh, by, by, uh, is copying what Paul said here. And I want you to see the unbelievable detail that Luke goes into to show us how Paul tries to connect with the crowd. What, in what language does Paul speak to the crowd? It says it in the end of chapter 21. He speaks to them in Hebrew. And chapter 22, verse 1, how does he call the crowd? They've just beaten them up. What does he call them? Brothers and fathers. Thanks for beating me. We're connected. He provides his Jewish credentials, right? He's showing that his Jewish chops are better than their Jewish chops. You can't out-Jewish me, he says. I've been a Pharisee. I've been a, I follow the law to the letter. Throughout his speech, he shows respect for the Jewish people, for the Jewish laws. He tells, and then he shares with them that despite all these things, despite his, his, his background, his love for the Jewish law, his, his incredible cultural um, closeness to them, he shows that his mind was changed. And his mind was changed not because he thought it was a good idea, but because God himself had to show up to tell Paul to go to the Gentiles. Too often for Christians, and here's the point I want you to see from this, too often for Christians, we declare ourselves to be courageous when simply we're only being pompous, bombastic, and uncouth in front of the world around us. Being a blowhard does not make you courageous. It just makes you dumb. That if you're going to communicate the gospel, that you would communicate in such a way that actually could be understood, that can actually be heard by the people around you, and which it can be received. Let me give you an illustration of this. A couple of years ago, a man named Tim Keller received a lot of pushback against him. And people were saying he was very soft on the sin of homosexuality. And the reason for that is because there was a YouTube video that was posted from something called the Veritas Forum, where Keller spoke at Harvard University and then took Q&A. And one of the Q&A questions was, are homosexuals going to hell? 
Now, Keller could have answered with the, with one, with the answer of, of Yike, which is what most people wanted to answer, which was, oh, yes, absolutely. Them homosexuals, they're going straight to hell. Now, he, he did say that homosexuality, that there's, in homosexual activity is a sin. But his answer, what, what he actually went about in his answer was, listen, the issue is not homosexuality. The issue is Repentance. And he spoke in such a way that people in that crowd could actually hear him. That he called, what he did is he, he took away the issue that was going to distract everybody, the issue of homosexuality. This is right before the Supreme Court uh, made the decision on homosexual marriage in our country. So it was a hot-button issue. And he cut through that, and he leveled the playing field and said, you know what? The big issue is those who go to hell are those who don't repent. Which means this is an issue for you and I, no matter what our sins are. Now, he took a major clack because he didn't direct, go at it head on. I think he was wise. I think he was following in the footsteps of Paul, who want, he wanted to be heard, and he wanted to communicate the gospel, not simply be, quote-unquote, bold. So Paul is courageous, but he ain't uncultured. Second, Paul is courageous, but he ain't panicked. Think about, think about the nuance in which Paul provides here. Paul has, again, he's just been beaten up. Like, you and I, if you've got a mob chasing you, I've got one thing on my mind, getting away. I ain't thinking very clearly. I've got one thought. I remember getting chased by two dogs, two Great Danes in my neighborhood. Like, I had tunnel vision on my door, right? There's one thing I'm thinking about. But Paul, in this moment, he turns and he proclaims the gospel to an angry mob that wants to kill him. And he does so not even just in the kind of an incoherent sort of way. How does he proclaim the gospel? He does it in a nuanced culturally relevant way. Now, what does this mean about what's going on inside Paul's mind and heart? He ain't scared. He isn't panicked. This is a fearful situation, yes, but he is not panicked by what's in front of him. He is showing incredible courage. The third thing I want you to see, Paul is courageous, but he ain't stupid. Paul is courageous, but he ain't stupid. If Paul can avoid beatings, he avoids beatings. He's just gotten beat up, but he wins. What I want you to see is he, he does in two ways. He actually avoids uh, further damage to his body and to his ministry. First, first thing he does is he uses his dialect. When he tries to win a hearing for the gospel by communicating to the Roman commander, he doesn't speak to him in the redneck Greek of the day, he, in what's called Koine Greek. He doesn't speak to him in common Greek. He actually speaks to him in, in, actually in Luke's language. There's a change in the Greek in the way Luke is writing here. When he quotes Paul, is it's classical Greek is communicated. In other words, he's using high cultured. He's revealing that he is a man of education and therefore wins for himself a hearing for the gospel. But we also see that when, when Paul is about to get beaten in order to get a confession out of him by the Roman soldiers, Paul appeals to what? The Roman justice system. In other words, Christians, the God has placed the government. So we see that the sword is there to bring order and to bring to, out of chaos and to bring discipline. And therefore, you should utilize it if you're able that we are not to have martyr complex who just kind of go, oh, yes, we'll just take this laying down. That you actually can appeal to the government. God has placed them there, and that's what Paul does. And he, he does it to avoid, avoid what? More physical harm to his body and possibly death. Listen, we, we can totally use this. You can, we, and this is one of the blessings that we have is to live in a land in which, for the most part, there is a lot of justice here. Listen, if David can go before in order to get out of some sort of difficult situation, can stand before a king and drool, and act like he's a crazy person, I think we can, in a reasonable sort of way, use the justice system as well. Courage is not taking a beating for the sake of beating. Courage is to stand up for the gospel. Fourth, Paul is courageous, but he ain't perfect. 
There's an interesting account at the beginning of chapter 23 where Paul, he, gets, he, he starts to make a defense before the Sanhedrin, and then suddenly the high priest slaps him across the face. Now, Paul responds rather rapidly, and he says this, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wool. Now, I think that's funny. But the question is, was that appropriate? Was Paul, and commentators debate as to whether this was right by Paul. Some say, well, Paul is blind. Or, that, you know, that's what many people think is that Paul, that was his thorn in the, in the flesh. That he couldn't see very well. That he couldn't see that this was the high priest who was slapping him. And others say, well, this is an impromptu meeting of the Sanhedrin. And so the high priest didn't have his garb on. I think Paul is wrong. I think he acts inappropriately here, and three reasons why. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says we should turn the other cheek, that when others revile us, we should bless in return. Paul violates the very thing he tells the church to do. In verse 5 of chapter 22, chapter 23, Paul steps away from his comment. He actually says, and he quotes the Bible, he quotes from a passage in Exodus where he says, no, I should respect the office, the man who holds the place of office. And then for the third reason, in Jesus in John 18, that Jesus is also smacked before the high priest. And Jesus' response is he answers with a question when he gets punched in the face. His response is gentle. There's a difference between a question mark and an exclamation point. Paul gave the exclamation point. Jesus gave the question mark. So I think Paul is actually acting irresponsibly here. The point I want to communicate to you is this. Many, very often we can look at the example of those who are courageous in the Bible, and they can kind of seem like they're on the mountaintop, right? Like Paul is on the mountaintop. He's like Superman. His cape is fluttering in the wind, and he's just better than all the rest of us. The reality is even the greatest of saints falls and has moments of weakness even as they seek to be courageous. And so, brothers and sisters, ultimately, the courage is found in Jesus Christ, not in your perfect display of courage. That's important to remember. Fifth and finally, Paul is courageous, but he isn't distracted. Or he's not fooled. Paul knows why he's on trial. And what I want you to see here is that while other people would like to distract Paul from the main message, he sticks to the message. He doesn't get lost into a bunch of details or try to defend himself with a bunch of legalese. What we see in verse 6 6 through 9 of chapter 23, I want to point you to what Paul thinks is the focus of the trial. Now when Paul, this is verse 6, says this, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, what, what many commentators believe is that Paul is actively, he's being very shrewd here, perhaps he is, that he's actively trying to distract the Sadducees and the Pharisees from him by trying to create a common ground and play something else they can fight about, that he's distracting. We do this with our kids, with my, like our toddler, and they're really angry about something. You do this with toddlers. You just kinda, they're like screaming at you, let me distract you, I'm going to push you over here, right? And suddenly you change the subject. That's what Paul is, some people think Paul is trying to do. I don't think that's what he's doing. Because what Paul will consistently say, not just in front of Jewish courts, but also in front of Roman courts, is that the resurrection is the reason why he's on trial. And what I think that Paul is actually doing here is he's not trying to divide the court. He's actually trying to appeal to the hearts of his listeners. You see, what we see in the Gospels and in the early parts of Acts is that because the Pharisees, there is a consistency to their doctrine, they believe the resurrection of the dead can happen. And that Paul is actually trying to speak, communicate directly to them and say, listen, we believe in the resurrection. I was a Pharisee like you. And that I'm going to proclaim to you the resurrection of Jesus, not as something that is less Jewish, but as the fulfillment of our theology. And he's actually calling them into belief, not simply trying to separate the Sanhedrin. 
Throughout these trials, Paul is consistently going to try to communicate the gospel. He never loses focus on this. This is important because even when you stand trial, Paul views, as we looked at last week, Paul makes all his wisdom decisions based around this question, what will bring about the advance of the gospel? And what I want you to see is that when even Paul calls for justice for himself and wants to stand in front of Roman tribunals and courts, his main goal is not to get there and seek justice for himself, but ultimately his main goal is to advance the claims of the gospel. Now, this is important, and let me apply it today. Paul stays on message. And I don't want to make a big deal about this because I'm not sure where I stand. But one of the big issues for Christianity today, and one of the things that's getting a lot of press and pub, is before the Supreme Court, this, this last time that they were together, was the California baker who would not serve a cake at a homosexual wedding. Now, listen, we all have, may have our views about in light of the Constitution is whether, whether that's just, right, or wrong, Okay. But what I will say is this, what is dismaying to me is that what is getting more press is Christians calling for justice than actually being more gospel proclamation on the TV screens. That there is a lack of focus as to what are my rights as opposed to the advance of the gospel. I'm not saying balance this out with what I said earlier, okay? Right? So don't, don't skewer me. Don't send me angry emails. I said you can, you can pursue justice, but pursue justice in the hopes for greater advance of the gospel message. So now I want you to see is the courage here. Paul displays courage, and he does so in a balanced and balanced way. But I also want you to see is this season of life probably was pretty discouraging for Paul. I mean, think about this. Think about Paul's life coming up to this. Paul had a tough time. He was journeying to Jerusalem with great and high hopes. He brings a great gift from the church in Macedonia, hoping to bring peace between Jews and Gentiles in the Jerusalem church. And he gets there, and the church is not only not that welcoming to him, but they're actually kind of suspicious of him. And then he goes out of his way to meet their needs and to try to win over his Jewish brethren. And what's their response? We hate you and we want to beat you and we want you ridded from this earth. And then he gets up and he communicates the gospel to them once again. And once again, they seek to beat him to death. Then he goes before the high priest and he is beaten again. Then Paul makes a mistake in his response to the high priest. He sins against him. That had to be pretty discouraging. And in the midst of the fight between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, once again, Paul has to be extricated because they're trying, to, they're trying to threaten his life. This is a difficult time for Paul. There is, he is getting more beatings than salvations, right? There ain't no one walking the aisle. It's all beatings for Paul. This is not a very happy ministry. But I want you to see, and this is going to end up going into our second and third, our third and fourth heading to bring us to a close this morning is this, is that in these moments of discouragement, God gives us reasons for courage. And he does so because he comes to reassure Paul with his word. Look at verse 11 of chapter 23. This is the key verse of the whole section. I want to see heading number three is the promises of God that are seen here in verse 11. The following night, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I want to see a couple of things about God's reassuring promises to Paul here. He tells him that he acts. It's not just what he says to him, but how he acts towards him. First, the Lord, when you need courage, the Lord stands with you. Remember that. That when you need courage, the Lord stands with you. The Lord stood by Paul, right? Verse, the following night, the Lord stood by him. He, he, Paul felt experientially the closeness of God's. 
He knows where and how we are. God knows where you are, not just physically, but he knows where you are spiritually and emotionally, your seasons of courage and your seasons of great discouragement. He is a good shepherd and he knows his sheep. You know, there's a great account in the, in the Old Testament in Kings, where there's a man, one of his great prophets, Elijah, the, what is known as pretty much the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And yet Elijah is prone to discouragement. And after a great victory, he runs out of the wilderness and he cries out before God, I just wish I'd die. <laughs> I just wish I'd die. And God in that moment invades. He sends provision for Elijah. You will suffer as Christians. That's the promise that, that Jesus happily gives us, I guess. You will suffer as a Christian, but he promises to always be with us in the midst of that. See, we can know that because he stood for you at the cross. He stood before you in God's wrath. And so how much more will he stand by you when you're actually serving him? He stood for you when you were running for him. How much more will he stand by you when you're actually having courage to stand for him? So the Lord stands with you. Second, the Lord is for you. Remember that the Lord is for you. Lord comes and he speaks to Paul and he encourages Paul's heart. He says, first, take courage. That's an exhortation. Be courageous. You know, isn't that distressing this morning when you read that from, um, from Joshua? Don't you want to, hey, be courageous. That's like me telling my kids, would you just stop crying? Like, and then they go to bed at night and they're scared of the dark. Just don't be afraid. That's not helpful, right? Until you get to the end of the section when he says, why? Why should they be courageous? Because I am with you wherever you go. And here in the same way, he says, be courageous. Why? Because you have done well. He says, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. He gives them an encouraging word. That listen, you have proclaimed the gospel and you have proclaimed it faithfully. And so here's Paul. One of the most famous Paul statements that Paul ever makes in his epistles is what? That he looks forward to the day when God will look at him at the standing in heaven one day, and he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well, the beautiful thing is this, is not only will God communicate to you at the end of all things, but there are times in his life where he will speak to you that same truth. This is a preemptive, well done, my good and faithful servant. And the guy comes in in Paul's discouragement and says this, and that means for Paul that, man, the Jewish people may be against me, the whole Roman system of justice may be against me, but it doesn't matter who stands against me. If God is for me, then that's a good thing then I can stand. Third thing we see God promise and reassure him of here is that the Lord isn't finished with him. And the Lord isn't finished with you either. What's he tell Paul? Hey, Paul, it's not going well here in Jerusalem, has it? It's not been a happy day. But we're going to go testify in Rome. He tells him, we got another day. We got another day coming. We get to do ministry. He promises, he actually reminds Paul of what he's already promised Paul in the past, that he's going to take him to Rome where he can share the gospel. Understand this truth. You are not mortal until God is finished with your mission on this earth. The Heidelberg Catechism says, Not a hair will fall from my head and without God's permission. Psalm 31 says, Our time is in his hand. And the truth is, is God is not done with us until he's done with us. And you know when he's done with you? When you come to and you're before his face. He is not finished with you, neither as a product of the Spirit's sanctifying work, nor as a means and tool for his glorious mission in this world. So let me just kind of push on a few of you in specific places you might be. Because Paul here, it's interesting, one of the most discouraging things about this may be his own personal sin, his own personal failure in front of the Sanhedrin. If some of you are in that place, you're discouraged today because of your own sin. And it undercuts your courage because how weak you are. The truth is, hear this, God isn't finished with you yet. Just because you're a sinner, he's not finished with you. That's actually part of what he's doing, is he's showing his strength through your weakness, that his grace is sufficient. 
Perhaps some of you, you're an empty nester, your kids have moved out, and you're wondering what's next for me. God isn't finished with you. There's another chapter. Perhaps you just broke up with somebody you thought you were going to marry, and your life feels directionless. God is not finished with you. Perhaps you're older and your body is breaking down, and you have no idea what is going on with our culture. You can hardly speak to it anymore. God isn't finished with you either. In fact, we desperately need you to speak. Would you get the courage? <laughs> Would you get the courage like Elijah? Elijah, when the children say, go on up, old bald man, that you call the bears down, that you get courageous because God is not finished with you. I want you to see in our last heading this morning, the promise, though, are undergirded by this truth, and that's the promise of providence of God. This is this last section. There's this story in which there is a, these people are really angry that Paul's still alive. And so 40 guys get together and say, you know what? We ain't eating or drinking until Paul's dead. So that means two things. That means they're really serious. And two, it means they better do this quickly. <laughs> this better happen soon. We better kill him. And in fact, not only is it these 40, it's not just like 40 mobsters like rabble out in the crowd who decide this. It actually involves the highest seats of power and authority in the, in the Jewish city right? They go to the Jewish authorities and they say, hey, call a council meeting so that their pause to come speak at, so that on the way, we can get him out of the jail, out of the barracks, and kill him on the way. But somehow, Paul's nephew hears of this conspiracy, and he gets word of Paul, who gets word of the centurion, who gets word of the commander, and so they, they whisk Paul out of town. Now, here's what I want you to see about this. God's name is never mentioned in this section, and yet God is working and he's working in things that don't appear to be that significant. But the small things in God's plan can be massive things. Because God brings about, he undergirds his promises by controlling providentially all things down to the smallest measure. God doesn't hesitate to use small things and small objects for his purpose. It's interesting. Paul, this is, the, this is the only, there's no mention of Paul's family before this. And there's no mention ever again of Paul's family. They are a blip on the radar screen of redemptive history. And yet we see it, they're significant in Paul's life. That this one action, and guess what? We're not told how his nephew finds out about this. It could have been like he just happened to be like, I don't know, at the, at the council, you know, I don't know, picking up a, a new scroll or dropping a message off. Or he may have heard from a friend of a friend of a friend. We don't know all the providential means by which God moved and worked. But this small thing God used to save Paul. And not only that, but to bring the gospel to Rome. That Paul would take the gospel to Rome, and actually Paul later on is going to be able to proclaim the gospel to the highest seat of power and authority in the Roman Empire because of this. So what I want you to see is, but we, the point is this, is even the most careful and cunning plans of the evil one cannot succeed if God opposes them. They cannot succeed. It says this in another place in the scriptures, no weapon formed against us will prevail. You see, the devil can have atom bombs in his arsenal, all God needs is five smooth stones to bring about his will, right? You see, the devil can, the devil, in fact, the devil's tried to do this, right? He's brought in his best weapons. He's brought in evil men. He's brought in injustice. And he had the brutality of a cross on his side. And yet God even used that to do what? To bring redemption to the world. So, brothers and sisters, the call here is to have courage, to trust the promises of God. And to see how the promises of God are undergirded by this beautiful truth. That God is not done with you. And that he can guarantee that his will will be brought about. Because he holds every little thing in his hands. You see the beautiful truth here for Paul. Is this. 
is that God allows him to be in chains. But what's the means of which Paul, God fulfills his will in Paul's life? He's been telling Paul, you're going to get to Rome. What's the means by which God is going to do that? Through the most discouraging things in Paul's life. Paul is imprisoned, and yet God will bring, use it to bring about God's plan in Paul's life and to advance the gospel. With that, we can take courage. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I, for some people in this room, this lesson at the end is a uh, yeah, yeah lesson. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, God's in charge of stuff. That's good. Oh, gracious God, I pray that you'd break through our, um, our hardness and our coldness to these truths. God, I pray that for those in this room who are discouraged this morning, that they would hear the promises that you're with them, that you're for them, that you're not done with them. That those who are discouraged because their circumstances are difficult, that they would see that you're the God who works in and through even the most evil and wicked of circumstances. And so, God, I pray that in us in this moment, if that's where we're at this morning, that we would wait on you, that we'd cry out to you, that we'd call out for you to give us courage in this moment, to stand firm, to communicate the gospel first and foremost, to be obedient to your will in this world, and that we would do so by looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who courageously stood, who faced fear and death and entered into it so that death cannot even touch us. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.